teaching of it by David Zadok. Well, good evening again. Uh, so wonderful to see everyone. I know the weather is great. Outside, the meeting is green, but I can't think of any other place to be in the whole world. To be here in God's house and with God's people. So I'm thankful for this uh, last opportunity <coughs> to be together. So if you can unable to stand, please stand up uh, for the reading of uh, the Word of God. And, uh, this afternoon it's coming from the book of Malachi, and uh, we will be reading uh, first the first 13 verses of chapter 1. So please pay careful attention uh, to the reading of the Word of the Living God. The oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Elam says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down they would be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted? <coughs> By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its food, that its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? So far, the reading 
of our first passage. Please be seated. As I'm sure by now you have noticed, uh, Malachi in your English uh, Bibles is actually the last uh, section of the Old Testament. Uh, however, in Hebrew is actually the last book of the prophetic section, the prophet's, uh, prophet section. The last book in the Old Testament is actually the first and second Chronicles. We don't have time to talk about why, uh, but that is an interesting thing as well. As a way of uh, introduction, uh, I would like to make just two brief observations about minor prophets that again can help us understand better or appreciate better the message of the Malachi in its larger context. First of all is, of course, that the 66 books of the Bible, uh, even though there are 66 books, but in fact, they are one book, and that's one reason that we have it from one cover to another. And even though these 66 books have been written to more than a, almost 1,200, 1,300 years by more than 40 people from different lives or different parts of life, uh, we have kings that have written parts, we have shepherds, uh, we have fishermen, and we even have a tax collector that time was. And yet, when we look at the whole of the scripture, we find one message, and that helps us to understand that it's actually, there is one author, even though there are 66 books. And I think when we certainly come uh, to this section, not only the minor prophet, but also the book of Malachi, its message, it's again part and parcel with everything else that we see from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And secondly, I think it's helpful to notice that the order of the 12 books um, of the prophets uh, are a little bit different between the Masoretic text, the Vulgate from which we have the English Bible, and also the Dead Sea Scrolls that we'll find. However, in all of those three, the first and the last book are always Hosea and Malachi. And interestingly, both books serve as a kind of a bookend to the minor prophets and start immediately with a personal human relationship that is compared to the relationship of God to his people. This morning when we looked at Hosea, we saw that he uses the relationship of a husband and a wife in order to help us see that. And as we read, Malachi uses the relationship of the father and the son. And of course, they both point us to the fact that the transcendent God of Israel is also the eminent God who is very close <coughs> to his people. So close that he compares that relationship to the closest relationship that humans can have as a husband and wife and as a father and son. And that this tool, as we shall see, helps us to appreciate much better the words of Malachi in its fuller context and particularly to see hope for God's people beyond themselves. As a husband protects his wife and takes care of her, and as a loving father who provides, or at least who should provide and disciple his children, so does Yahweh for his people and for his church. So in the minor prophet, the last words of God are always that hope <coughs> that 
we see. Judgment first, but then salvation. Our text this afternoon is taken, as I said, from the two passages. We read the first one. Later on, we would read also the second one. A brief introduction, again, to Malachi after we talk a little bit about the 12 minor prophets. Before really diving into these verses that we read, uh, we need to say just a few words. Uh, like the book of Hosea, which bears the name of the prophet of its writer, also Malachi is the author name that appears. And in both cases, both with Hosea and Malachi, uh, we find their name already in the very first verse, and that's also the case for the rest of the other 10 books uh, of the 12 prophets. Moreover, one of the characteristics of the 12 prophets is that they all begin with the name of the prophet, but most of them don't tell us much about who they are or even their family. There are very few of them that tell us. None of them tells us much about who they are and who are their father. And I think there is something in that because the prophets wanted us to concentrate in their message and in the content of what they are telling us rather than in who they are, how great or not great they are. So in most of them, we don't even know what their occupation was. And in regard to Malachi, we actually don't know any of those things. And in fact, the name Malachi doesn't appear anywhere else in the scriptures. And there are commenters who even claim that Malachi, which in Hebrew means also a messenger, is not a man or a prophet, but an angel or a messenger of God. But it's interesting that even Rambam, the famous, well-known Spanish rabbi of the 11th century, who was also a great philosopher, whom rightly so, most of us as Messianic uh, Jews do not agree with his interpretation. He thinks that not only Malachi was a man, but he also said that it's possible that his full name was Malachiahu, which also includes the name of God. But more importantly, it's <coughs> unlikely that all of the 11s who wrote the 11 prophets are men and prophets, and the last one is only an angel who doesn't exist as a human. We know that the three latter prophets, according to the order in which they appear in the scriptures, namely Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are defined as post-exilic. Malachi prophesies between the years of 437 to 417 BC, after the return of the exile that happened in 538 BC by the order of King Cyrus, as we read about the king of Persia, as we read about in the book of uh, Ezra. When the exile returned to Jerusalem, the goal was not only to renew the Jewish settlement in the land of the fathers, but also, and maybe above all, to rebuild the temple and to return to the worship of the one God, the Yahweh. And they rebuilt the temple in the exact same place where the first one was built and later was destroyed by Babylonians. The exile and the destruction were part of God's judgment on his people and the severe punishment, we should say, that they received 
due to, due to the idolatry. This is the same whoredom that Hosea earlier called the people of Israel to repent from. And he said that if they would not, and they did not, God's judgment would come upon them. But soon after the people returned to Jerusalem, they felt at ease that they already had a place to sleep, to put their head, they built their own homes and houses, but the work of the building of the house of God was neglected. They started to do the foundation of the temple, but then they stopped for various reasons. Therefore, at the beginning of the words of Haggai, the first prophet, the, uh, the first post-exilic prophet, he tells us these things in verses 4 and 8 of chapter 1. And I'm reading from that. It says, Is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who learns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. It's interesting that in this small passage, twice, God tells the people, consider your way. I know many pastors who had uh, some kind of a church building activity use this verse, you know, go to the mountains and bring wood. <laughs> but I think the passage is really not talking about giving for the, uh, for the building of a church, even though that's always at times are needed. But I think that Haggai's words, written almost 2,500 years ago, are still very relevant to us today in the 21st century. What happened to them can easily happen to us today as well. We can reach a point in our life when life is quite good and comfortable. And then there is a tendency to forget and neglect our relationship with God and the work of God in our lives and to ignore His calling and to ignore the importance of the life of the church. Malachi begins his, word, his words with an accusation. The people dare to question God's special love for them. They ask, how do you love us? And God answers them on the basis of his love for Jacob and that he hated Esau. In verse 6 to 9, it's a similar structure. But this time God asks the questions, a son honors his father and serves his master. If I'm a father, then where is my honor? Earlier this morning, when we read the fifth commandment uh, from the Westminster Confession, we talked about how we ought to honor our father and mother. And God asked, and where is my fear? And these are not rhetorical questions, but questions that contain blame. And in this case, also against the priests, the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel. One of the, character, one of the many characteristics of God that we find 
in the scripture already in Genesis is that God is a God who is close to his people. In Islam, on the other hand, Allah is so supposedly sublime and exalted that he is somewhere up there, far from the people, and it's busy with his own affairs. And his main affair is really writing down in his notebook the good and the bad deeds of the people in their preparation for the day of the judgment. But the God of Genesis, already in the Garden of Eden, walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And later when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush in the book of Exodus chapter 3, he told him that he has heard, he has sown, and he knows the affliction of his people. And more than that, he said that he has come down to bring them up to the land. He has come down in order to bring them up to the land that he has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But his ultimate closeness to us, of course, is found in Christ who came down to us, tabernacled among us as one of us, and in his fullness of divinity was with us. And if that wasn't enough, as he went up to glory to sit at the right hand of the Father, he sent his spirit to dwell in us and to make us his temple. There is no God that is closer than that to his people. And in light of this particular characteristic of God, it's interesting that in the book of Hosea, God compares his relationship to the people to that of a husband and a wife and a father and a son. And in the last book, of course, how we see the sin of the people and he compares that relationship to that relationship that the father should have with his son. Hosea and Malachi as the first and the last in the order of 12 are like the front and the back of a cover of a book. There are quite a few parallels that actually we find between them and family ties is only one of them. And if we continue with the image of a book and a cover, then Hosea prophesied to Israel and Judah and covers all the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we have already seen, the two prophets use family ties. But when Malachi is speaking and when he's writing, the northern tribe of Israel was already in exile. So his main message is actually to Judah. And in order to intensify the transgression, the transgression of the people and the great disappointment of God from his people, he compares it to that of the family ties. Now a bit about the structure of the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is made of the six prophecies. In Hebrew, it's actually three chapters. In English, it's four. Hebrew is always a much more efficient language than English anyway, so. <laughs> it's made up of six prophecies of wrath and judgment, and all six are built in a very similar and quite simple structure as we saw. The first one that begins in the second verse that we read, we saw that it begins with a question to the people, because God declares that he loves his people, but they ask, how do you love us? And his answer, God actually compared 
Jacob and Esau. He's dealing with Jacob and Esau between his chosen people and the Edomite people, the descendants of Esau. God blessed Jacob, but he completely destroyed Edom. And we earlier this morning talked about the book of Obadiah, or Obadiah, as we say in Hebrew. God's choice of Israel, unlike the Edom, shows his love. You know, when a person decides to marry someone and chooses that person, that special one, it shows not only his choice or her choice, but it shows particularly that he or she, he loved more than others. And when I married my wonderful wife, there were probably maybe one or two other options. You know, I didn't have that many options. <laughs> but when I chose her, uh, I told her, and she realized that she's the one that I love. She's the only one that I love. So when God chose Israel, it was a sign of his love. And that's why he says, he talks about the Edomite, because they were destroyed. They weren't the chosen one. And this act of God also points to the fact that God is far greater beyond the borders of Israel, because God is sovereign over all the nations and everything. The second prophecy, which is the longest of the six, begins in verse six of chapter one, and ends actually in chapter, second chapter in verse nine. Here the main accusation, as we mentioned, is against the priest. But there is also a blame for the people. After the second temple was built, God's service began. And according to the Mount Sinai covenant, the people had to bring sacrifices. And there were five types of sacrifices that we read in the book of Leviticus. One of God's main requirements for bringing the sacrifice was to bring a sacrifice that was perfect and without blemish. A pure and a perfect sacrifice worthy of the holy and a perfect God. The people would bring the sacrifice to the temple and the priest had, among other things, was to check to make sure that the sacrifice was such. So the role of the priest was to examine the sacrifice and to make sure that it met the criteria that God had set. But pretty soon, the people started to bring cheap animals who were far from meeting the criteria. And the priest, instead of rejecting their sacrifices, and helping people to correct their sin, they went along with the people. And that can happen also to us today. So God blames them, the priest, but also blames the people. That's why God tells them at the end of the second section in verse 9, He said, I will make you despise and abase before all the people, because you do not keep my ways. The third thing that Malachi spoke of was the sin of intermarriage. And we see this particularly in the two books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This was one of the people's problem after their return from exile. There was less idolatry as Hosea warned, but mixed marriages and divorces were the great sin of the people 
after they have returned to Zion. Malachi began, begins the theme in verse 10 of the second chapter and ends it in verse 16, where he declares that God hates divorce. The fourth and the fifth prophecies refer to the unfaithfulness of the people of Judah to the covenant God made with them. As I said earlier, the 10 northern tribes didn't return from the Assyrian exile. Therefore, the reference here is to Judah, the southern kingdom. And these two prophecies begin in verse 17 of the second chapter and end in the 12th verse of the third chapter. The fourth prophecy that ends in verse 5 refers to the distortion of God's words. They said, all evildoers are good in God's eyes. But here, there is already a message of hope and salvation. Chapter 3 begins with God's promise that he will send a messenger to clear the way of the Lord. And he would enter his temple. Now you can understand the importance of building the temple that why Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi encouraged the people to finish building that temple. Because that was the temple where Christ came to it and from it preached the gospel of grace. The fifth prophecy mainly refers to the tithes and the contribution in which they also sinned by not bringing what they should have. God tells them, you are robbing me. He says that no less than that, by not bringing your tithes to the temple, you are robbing me. So friends, when we don't give our tithes and offerings to God, we are actually robbing him. It's very interesting that when Calvin went to his church in Geneva, he would tell his congregation that when you are coming late, to the church, you're robbing God of his time. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but they say that since then, Swiss people are making the most <laughs> in the whole world. So, maybe it's the case. We did talk about how Christians have impacted the society for better, so this might be one of them. But even here, despite the sins of God and his judgment on Judah, there's already a promise of hope for the people. God even tells them, he said to them, test me and see if I will not reward you when you follow my commandments and give first and foremost what I deserve. And then I will repay you times, many times over. Now God doesn't want to give us a motivation to give so that we receive more. That's not the case. But rather, God wants us to encourage, to, wants to encourage us that we need to trust Him. We need to put our faith in Him so that even when we give the first fruit of our salaries or whatever God has given, God will provide for us and we will lack nothing. By putting our trust and our confidence in God, He's strengthening our faith, and that's what he does. And the sixth and the last prophecy is against the people of Judah, as I said already, and it begins in verse 13 of chapter three and ends in verse 21. By the way, I'm telling you all these verses so that later on you can read at home 
the whole book of Malachi. The song is reading is about, I don't know, 20, 20 minutes or 15 minutes, and it's really worth reading, especially that for you, it's the last book in the Old Testament. So tomorrow you can start reading Matthew chapter 1. <laughs> and this time, they claim that in the eyes of God, there is no difference between the righteousness and the wicked, those who keep his commandments and those who don't. And if so, then why bother? God's clear answer to them is that he records everything and there is a day of judgment for everyone. Not like Allah, but God does keep the record. Then the wicked and the righteous in that day will receive the due reward. In verse 17, in the middle of the prophecy, God has mercy as a father has mercy on his son. As he says, I will have mercy on you as a father has on the son. And it's fascinating to me and it's interesting because one of the first accusations of God to the people was that if I am a father and you are a son, where is my honor? And yet here, God, who their son did not honor him, their sons did not honor him, he is honoring them. They didn't give the proper respect to the God as a father. God, on the other hand, has mercy on them as a father has to his son. So just a few verses, the last six verses of, uh, of the last chapter in Malachi, chapter 4. Uh, you might, might, might be too bad to stand up, so please, if you can stand up, in case you are falling. I still have the grapes here. <laughs> For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the start, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the sole of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the grave, an awesome day of the Lord comes. Please be seated there. So finally and lastly we come to the real great hope. But this is not the only hope that it's find in Malachi, as in Hosea, in fact in all of the scripture, God's last word is always his hope, not judgment and not punishment. So also in the last verse of Malachi. Hope is the last word from God. Uh, in these last words of uh, Malachi, there is an anticipation of the coming of the Messiah as the time is getting closer to that. So we get, and as the time is getting closer, you're getting more information about the coming of the Messiah. 
God's promise to the prophet is that he would send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the terrible day of the Lord. The last prophet prophesizes about an event that is very near and in preparation for this great and terrible day, God sends Elijah to pave the way and prepare the people. Indeed, Matthew, the writer of the first gospel in the chronological order that we find in the in our Bible, presents us with Elijah in the form of John the Baptist, who calls the people to repent. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then 5 and 6, we read this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were coming out to him, and they were baptized in him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. John the Baptist prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah, and he called the people to repent and be baptized. But the full proof of the fact that John the Baptist was the Elijah mentioned in Malachi is found in the words of Christ himself in Matthew 17, verses 11 to 13. And Jesus said this, the disciple asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, they say that because Malachi said it. And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciple understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now it's very interesting that this conversation that Jesus is having takes place right after the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus on that mountain top. So in the way of uh, conclusion, how great is it that God's last words to us through the last prophet ends with a great and an excellent promises. Although Malachi accuses the people of Judah and the priests at least six times about the lack of their loyalty to God, his commandments and to his covenant, yet in all of them, there's a great hope. There is a savior who would come to their temple, in the same temple, where they grossly violated and despised God and the sacrifice that they brought. But there, the Savior, the Savior will bring the message of repentance and correction in that exact place. And this is again the greatness of God because He is a gracious and a merciful God. He's a God and a King. Well, it's not Charles III. He and He alone is worthy of praise and glory. And as Malachi says, for the, from the rising of the sun to the, its setting, my name will be great among the nations. So dear congregation, we have a great hope. And it doesn't matter how deep 
we have fallen. Malachi shows this fact so clearly and plainly. In the same place and the same land that God's people sinned, horribly against him, he sent the Savior to come. And from there, he proclaimed his gospel. And not far from that temple, he offered himself as a perfect and a blemish sacrifice, a one that the people of Israel were not able to bring. And he became the once and for all sacrifice who can atone for all our sins and transgressions. But in a greater way, Malachi also, I believe, points us to the second coming of Christ. Because God sent his Messiah the first time exactly as he has promised. So in the same way, God would send the Son the second time exactly as he has promised in the pages of the New Testament. So brothers and sisters, this is the gospel in the Old Testament. And this is the gospel according to Malachi. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your gospel is so glorious and grand. We thank you that we see your gospel in every single page of your scriptures. We thank you that we can put our trust in these scriptures because it's one message that we can see because it has one author. And we thank you for the message of the Malachi, preparing the people of Judah back then for the coming of the Messiah, the first coming of the Messiah. But we thank you that Malachi also encourages us and gives us hope to persevere and not to give up as the Lord would come. So we say, Marathon, our Lord Christ, come quickly. And it is his name that we pray and ask all this. Amen. Amen. Amen.